0: Hello and welcome to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is Identifying U.S. Regime Change Campaigns, a panel from the 2020 UNAC Conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition.
1: My name's Kevin Zeiss. I co-direct Popular Resistance I was one of the embassy protection collective members that's currently facing prosecution. This is a really important panel. I, when we started organizing this conference, I wanted to make sure we highlighted this question of how we identify regime change efforts by the United States because I've seen in the uh, peace movement a lot of confusion and division over a, a series of U.S. regime change actions. People you know, want to support organic movements that are rising up against imperfect governments. But we also recognize that the U.S. has kind of changed its tactics in recent years. Uh, The Gene Sharp school of thought of uh, nonviolent actions to change governments is not just used by political movements, but also used by the U.S. government. And uh, we've seen in discussions on Syria, discussions on Nicaragua, Hong Kong, Venezuela, lots of confusion. The Hong Kong rule is that really a, re- a revolt among the Hong Kong people? Was Nicaragua really revolting against the Sandinistas? Uh, we all know Venezuela is not. That, that was an easy one. And so it's really important for us to be aware of the telltale signs of U.S. regime change versus organic movements. And so we can be clear in our networks when these things come up. And uh, we do a lot of work in popular resistance on these issues. When we see a a protest in Iraq or Hong Kong or or Iran, we're trying to figure out, is this real or is this the U.S.? And so we've developed some ideas on what those telltale signs on. We have a really interesting panel. We're going to be looking at uh, regime change efforts in Iran in the 1950s, the Ukraine coup, which was the most open U.S. coup before Venezuela, (laughs) <laughs> and then Nicaragua, and I'll be talking about some other uh, that aren't covered after we hear from the panel. So we're going to start with Iran, Nuri Ranagi. After the CIA coup d'etat uh, and the, uh, the Shah's repression, Nuri's family was forced to migrate to the United States. When she returned to Iran for her father's funeral during the rule of the Shah, she was put in solitary confinement. Nuri is a 50 year member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She's co founder of the U.S. Department of Peace and leads the Women's Commission of the Party of Communist Revived Women for Racial and Economic Equality. Uh, please welcome our first speaker. Thank you so much.
2: Constitutional monarchy was established in 1906 in Iran. The discovery of largest Iranian problem starts here. The discovery of largest petroleum in Iran <clears throat> resulted in British empire influence on Iran. Darcy was a contractor from Australia that made contract with Shah of Iran to extract oil. And after 10 years, Iran had discovered the oil. And then British right away bought the contract without Iranian consent or knowledge. Anglo-Iranian oil company was created and then became British Petroleum, which they were ruling on Iran about 40 years. And after that, British carried a coup d'etat in Iran in 1921 and brought Reza Shah, the last dynasty to power to renew the oil contract because it was 40 years of it was gone and now it was only left 20 years and they wanted to renew it and actually Reza Shah renewed the contract for another 60 years. And Reza Shah, when he came to power by British imperialism, imprisoned Dr. Mossadegh, which we will get to know him. In 1951, Prime Minister Dr. Mossadegh received the vote of public to nationalize the British controlled oil industry. The contract was only 16% of net profit to be given to Iran, and even that was not given, and the books were not opened. So Mossadegh, when he came to power, asked, let us see the books and find out where the money that we are entitled is going. Even that British was not willing to do that. Then despite British pressure, including economic blockade, and that is more than seven years ago. So we are used to blockades. (laughs) And military blockade by British, when Dr. Mossadegh started to nationalize oil, nationalization of oil took place. And during Mossadegh, Italy was trying to buy oil from Iran when we were encircled militarily. They overthrew two ships, two Iranian oil ships on the ocean and didn't let Iran to be able to sell its own oil after it was nationalized. Then British knew that needs to get help from United States. During Mossadegh, I need to tell you, I was about 12 years old, and we all lived in Iran. And it's really amazing to remember how Dr. Mossadegh not only nationalized oil, but gave such a pride to people, and also uh, did some land reform and lots of things while we were... Blockade by British and United States was not willing to help and did not help. Iranians were putting, including me, we were putting our pennies together to save the government. Children, children were doing that. And people became so politically savvy of what is going on in the world. And then United States in 1953, in their embassy, U.S. embassy, they carried coup d'etat against Dr. Massadegh. I need to tell you an interesting thing, and that is U.S. ambassador goes to Masadek the minute, the hours that they were carrying coup d'etat and telling Dr. Masadek that people's are revolting Iranian people and they are making for American embassy and American people in Iran they are making it scary and uncomfortable abusing the hospitality and loving attitude of Dr Masadegh and Dr Masadegh tells people that you have to go home and stop the marching and stop the demonstration. While to the party knew, and Iranian National Front knew that CIA is carrying coup d'état, and they had the person who was their agent and became prime minister after after that, they had him in the embassy, in U.S. embassy. They carried kudeta several times until they succeeded. And they abused Mossadegh and Iranian people's hospitality to be able to do their, their evil work. Even Shah of Iran, which was very young, which was relatively young at the time, that is 70 years ago, was softer and was asking about Mossadegh being there and United States said no United States wanted the oil so they really hardened him and soon as they carried coup d'etat they killed foreign minister and they killed quite a few my brother was medical student at the time and many to the party members Day after day, very fast, they were executed. And my brother, we had a friend that to save him, they imprisoned him right away so that he wouldn't be executed. And all our friends, they were executed, so many, after coup d'etat. My mother had rings like this. And we hid in our house two little girls at that, for U.S. little, 13 and 15. And they were older than me, and they were member of youth, to the party youth. And my mother hid them in our house, and the CIA established SAVAK police in Iran. I want you to all know that the United States has CIA here, and any country, which hundreds, they carry coup d'etat, they right away create a branch of CIA. In Iran, it was Savak. They established that. And somebody from Savak, which was our neighbor, came to our house and saw these two girls. And he said that he is going to report them and report us so that they take the girls and my mother was taking the ring off of her arm and giving it to the agent and begging to let the girls stay. And at that point he got all the rings and left gold and then we had to get rid of those two girls, 13 and 15, they were killed by CIA, by United States, because they created Sabak, which I was imprisoned later, and they created Evin Prison, the most dreadful prison at the time, because that was the first CIA coup d'etat in Iran. Then Iran and United States, of course, they carried contracts. Forty percent of Iranian oil came yeah. to U.S. and 40 percent to British and 20 percent to Holland. From 1953, especially from 1970 to 80, if you look at VMO, U.S. arms, you will see that Iran was the most military purchaser of United States for more than 10 years. And all those military was used by killing Iranian people inside and Iran becoming gendarme of the region and attacking the Far, right next to present Yemen. And 15,000 Iranian soldiers, all of the Iranian oil money was used to, to suppress another movement that United States wanted to suppress with our money and our soldiers to benefit U.S. imperialism. CIA creation and training of SAVAK torture and imprisonment and execution of Progressive National Front, all Iranian National Front and to the party, and workers and peasants continued for 26 years. And also the neighborhood, Iran with Israel, they were together terrorizing the Middle East countries and killing Iranian in Yemen. To the party, National Front was revived eventually before revolution from 1966 to 1979. I returned to Iran in 1978, before revolution. When my father died, I took my mother Back home. They took me and put me in solitary confinement. And from my prison, I could hear that they were pulling people who they have tortured and they couldn't walk. I could hear the feet that somebody, the torturer, is pulling them after torturing them, to take him to their cell. This was, this was the music when I was in solitary confinement in Iran. The organizations were to the party, uh, Mujahideen, and National Front. In 1971, during Shah, any movement that was going on, during Shah, they tried to suppress it. Iranian revolution took place in 1979. It's interesting to know that people's movement, which was anti-imperialist, anti-dictatorship, anti-Shah, was taking place, and there were so many organizations in Iran. At the time, Two politics existed in the presidency, President Carter, as well as Kissinger and the gang. Kissinger and the gang, they believe that we need to keep the Shah by any means and suppress the movement. So they burned a theater with 600 Iranians, children, youth in there. And they also sent General Heiser in Iran and they killed... Thousands on Black Friday in Iran. I didn't tell you that in 1953, after the coup d'etat, there were tracks that moving dead and half-dead bodies of mostly young people and some girls with long hair it was bleeding from their hair. And some of them were dead, some of them were not dead, and they were moving. And you, they, they did a movie of that. And you could see trucks moving dead people. That was 1953. 1979, Black Friday, they did almost the same killing. And when it didn't work out, then the second alternative of Carter was implemented, and they brought Khomeini and tried to escort him with some spies, hoping that his anti-communist attitude could help the United States. And it did. It did work. So that when the government was created, then they started war, Iran-Iraq war. Of course, before that, United States is always as imperialism as it is killing over the world. It is uh, victimized by the, the hostage crisis. You probably know the only thing you know about Iran is the hostage issue. During hostages, none of them got hurt. In United States, I was visited by CIA. Two of them came to my house with my friend, and they threatened to kill me and my children from CIA. <laughs> and strangely, we sat and talked, and we went out for some drink. I'm um, not a drinker, but... And talked and talked and talked, and we became friends. Then Ku Klux Klan sent me on, with blood writing that we will cut your throat and your children's throat when I was in Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia. Many Iranians got killed. Most painful for me was that Americans, they made mistake with a sheikh, sheikh, and they killed him, which was from India. We don't know. Sikh, Sikh, right? Yeah, they don't know the difference, so they killed this Sikh that was not even Iranian. They killed so many, many Iranians, and they came to my place and threatened me to kill me. Well, I wanted to talk about present situation. This was history. Present situation, United States helping MEK, now, I wanted to show you the history of MEK. MEK, with the help of United States, with eight years war, with bringing our planes down, killing civilians, Iranian civilian plane. With all of that, MEK killed 74, including four ministers in July 1981 and 24 members of parliament in Iran. And the second terrorist act, many. Second one was eight, including president of Iran and prime minister of Iran. Eight head, the top state government. And now United States, and I have a list of high, U.S. official Bolton is getting $180,000 for speaking with MEK. And Giuliani getting $50,000, $60,000 repeatedly. And they are prompting them against Iran in Iraq, in Albania, in everywhere else. The danger is that we think they are quiet after killing Soleimani. But wait, this government, on the issue of election, what it may show himself is what they planned for so many years to attack Iran. In 2008, U.S. Congress passed $400 million to attack Iran, and they used it. They killed so many scientists. They did some uprisings of some of our minority, Kurds, Turks, Baluch, and all of that, and Arabs that we, we have a multi, multi uh, cultural. They tried that. And so many, many other things. Wow. Thank you. So. Thank
1: you all. Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Identifying U.S. Regime Change Campaigns, a panel from the 2020 UNAC Conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition.
1: There's so much to say about Iran. There's so much to say about Iran, and there's a lot going on currently that we could talk about. But a lot of what was described really became a blueprint for many U.S. regime change operations. Uh, since that time. We're next going to hear about Ukraine Uh, from Maria Zaharenko. She's an activist against the uh, U.S. coup in Ukraine. She did her dissertation on community movements in Ukraine in the field of um, social psychology. Please welcome Maria Zaharenko.
3: I want to speak about what happened in uh, our country, in Ukraine, before the coup in 2014, and what is happening now. The interests of the West in Eastern Europe are quite understandable and diverse. In addition to economic, geopolitical aspects are very important uh, because they caused by proximity to Russia. Geopolitically, Ukraine is the largest country in uh, Europe, which has the largest common border with Russia. What were the techniques that you say used in Ukraine since the collapse of the Soviet Union to the coup d'état in 2014? The first is corrupting Ukrainian elites. First of all, through very expensive loans given by IMF These loans are so huge, and the interests of them are so great that many future generations of Ukrainians will have to pay for them. At the same time, a significant part of this money has been stolen and is used uh, in the personal interests of the bourgeois and oligarchs. The second, the Soros foundations and the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, which founded by the uh, U.S. Congress, have been particularly active during the entire period from the end of the 19th in the social sphere in Ukraine. They used their means to build loyalty for the so-called democracy, but in fact were agents of the influence of Western society. The third is training of opposition. Opposition activists were founded and trained in tactics of political organization and nonviolent resistance by Western sociologists and professional consultants who were partially funded by Western government and non-government institutions. The foreign donors included uh, the U.S. State Department and U.S. aid, along with the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, the International Republican Institute, Trust for Mutual Understanding Foundation, the NGO Freedom House and uh, George Soros Open Society Institute. From 2011 to 2014, National Endowment for Democracy sent almost 14 million to support Ukrainian non government organizations. Then, financing of new media. On the first day of the coup on Maidan in 2014, three new oppositional TV were opened. The informational contribution to the coup cannot be overestimated. Training of journalists in method of informational warfare. And uh, chaotization, support and financing of ultra-right groups, open support and instructions of opposition and uh, mass uh, uh, riots. Many of you have probably seen how U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland was holding out cookies on Maidan. She openly stated Washington had spent five billions uh, since uh, 1991 to establish a strong democratic government in Ukraine which was done in 2014 by coup. What happened next? A corrupt but pro-Russian president was replaced by a corrupt but pro-Western president. (laughs) As the result of color revolution, a coup, a tragedy of 2nd May occurred in Odessa, when the opponents of the coup were burned alive. A civil war began, which has been going on for five years. And uh, the main US strategic goal, uh, membership of Ukraine in NATO, is now enshrined in the constitution of Ukraine. What is the consequences for Ukraine of this coup? The first, most important, is the final redistribution of the state property when the most strategically important enterprises and corporations for the state are bought out and transferred to the management of the western capital. The last state's resource is land. Today, the requirement to open a land market is the key condition for obtaining the next tranche of the IMF loan. Ukraine's ending direct deliveries of gas and electricity from the Russian Federation is one of the goals of the United States that wants to obtain a market for its own energy carries. These actions led to a sharp rise in the prices for utility bills. These payments are so huge in relation to the salaries and pensions that most people are simply at the risk of survival. As a result, suicide of pensioners who cannot pay bills have reached the records in our country. There is a process of destroying of social state. A new labor court is currently beginning to appear in our parliament which is provisions as uh, the first, abandonment of uh, eight-hour working day through an increase. The second, the right of the employer to dismiss a worker without his or her concern. Refusal of paid maternity leave. And it gives uh, to the collective West a sizable army of cheap labor. Next point is the creation of an autonomic church contrary to all traditions and law of the Orthodox Church. It was followed by seizure of cathedrals and property of the Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. This is followed by a powerful propaganda campaign to desert texts. The next is uh, the deprofessionalization of all spheres of public life and industries, based on the degradation of the educational system. Science and education are simply begin destroyed because uh, external management don't need educational people in Ukraine. This has happened against the backdrop of forced ukrainization, the purpose of which is to ban the Russian language. Have you ever seen that in the modern country, people would be officially forced to speak a language that is not their native language? Almost 50% of the population uh, speaks Russian but now they should speak Ukrainian. The next uh, very important thing is the fighting uh, continues in Ukraine. People are dying on both sides, and we see no real efforts to end both. This war is, uh, is an extremely profitable commercial event for businessmen from the state administration. For the Mest, the main thing that is hot war constantly smolders on the border with Russia. And Kyiv has excuse to ask uh, the West for money to confront Russia. And the main thing that I want to say today is important to know about the recent visit of U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Belarus Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan, where he held meetings with the leader of states close to Russia, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. All these countries borders with Russia, and uh, he's trying to mobilize them to confront Russia. Uh, His goal was to probe the readiness of these societies to act within the strategic framework of color revolution. This visit took place immediately after the constitutional reforms announced by by President Putin and can be seen as a signal that American ruling circuses are actively considering destabilization. That's all. I want to see you
0: today. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Identifying U.S. Regime Change Campaigns, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti War Coalition.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. The, the Ukraine coup is such an interesting one. You know, people who know who Stratford is, Stratford is essentially the corporate CIA. The uh, CEO of Stratford says it was the most open coup in U.S. history. And uh, one reason for that is if you go into WikiLeaks and look up Ukraine and uh, Poroshenko, the uh, former president, you'll find that he, for six years before becoming president, was a CIA informant. He was known as OU, Our Ukraine, Our Ukraine Insider. Uh, and so he was, of course, who the U.S. wanted to see in power. If you may remember, Victoria Newland talking to the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine on a cell phone that was overheard called for Yats to be the prime minister, and Yatsenko was the prime minister. And then I think one of the really glorious ones was the finance minister, who had been a long-time State Department official, who came to Ukraine to become a kind of the pass-through of that five billion dollars that you described. She became a finance person. The Investor in Ukraine and became the pass through for billions of dollars to help to build the opposition to the Ukraine government. She was appointed the finance minister of Ukraine on the day she was appointed. OU made her Ukraine citizen so she could be finance minister. And then, of course, we know about Hunter Biden and that corruption that the gas company carries uh, finance, finance here for his campaigns was joined Hunter Biden on that board as a former CIA official. So really, Stratford was right in calling it the, one of the most open coup uh, in U.S. history, although I think Venezuela now may have topped that. Let's go to our next topic, which is Nicaragua. Now, Nicaragua is one that was so confusing to people in the United States for lots of reasons. And Jill Clark Golub, who will talk about that, is a, uh, a Nicaraguan American lives in the United States. Uh, when this uh, most recent U.S. coup happened in the spring of 2018, Uh, She began to put a lot of attention and energy into trying to tell the story of the Nicaraguan people. Uh, She's led delegations to Nicaragua and has helped to bring some light to this area uh, that has caused a great deal of confusion. Please welcome Jill.
4: Thank you, Kevin. In April of 2018, the safest country in Central America, Nicaragua, erupted in a spasm of violence. Social media went haywire with reports that the police were shooting live ammunition at students protesting pension reform. Yes, I said students protesting pension reform. And they said that one was killed by the police. There were 3 million such posts those first 48 hours. This in a country of 6 million. And that led to more protests, and rioting and looting. Rioting and looting had never been seen in Nicaragua before. No one was actually killed that day, but the second day, a police officer was killed by sniper fire, a Sandinista youth supporter of the government was killed protecting a government office, and an innocent bystander was killed. All of these deaths and the following ones were reported in the corporate media as victims of government repression. After a few weeks, the protests moved to some 1,300 roadblocks set up all over the country, paralyzing commerce and confining people to their homes. By the time the violence ended in mid-July, about 198 people were dead, including 22 police officers. And of the rest, about one. Third were known Sandinista supporters, known government supporters. About one third were known opposition supporters, and the rest, the affiliation of the rest, could not be determined. One thousand two hundred and forty people were injured, including four hundred and one police wounded by firearms. There was close to a billion dollars in damage, mostly to government property. One hundred nineteen thousand jobs were lost. Foreign investment and GDP tanked, and what had been a booming tourism industry is still stagnated almost two years later. But by July of 2018, the population figured out that the opposition was responsible for most of the violence, so they came out to help dismantle the roadblocks, and peace returned. Since that time the Sandinista Party has drawn more people to its demonstrations than at any previous time in its 60-year history. So for now, the coup is defeated. But there are a few things about the Nicaragua 2018 case that peace activists here should be aware of, which can help us figure out whether a country is experiencing a genuine uprising or a regime change attempt. First... If it doesn't make sense, it probably isn't true. (laughs) When I first heard that the national police were firing indiscriminately on protesters, I couldn't wrap my head around why they would do that. I know that sometimes police officers make mistakes for different reasons, and they go too far and they kill innocent civilians. I kept thinking of Kent State, right? But... The police don't come out and do that day after day after day. There's an uproar about it, they apologize, but they don't just keep doing it. So, some people who believed the mainstream narrative would say things like, Well, that dictator has just become so heinous that he's killing anyone who protests. But that didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. The only police force that I could think of that would have such a reputation was maybe Duterte's police in the Philippines. But anyone with cursory knowledge of Nicaragua Mm -hmm. knows that its national police are known for having good relations with the community. This is why the gang problem has kept in check in Nicaragua, which in turn is why our borders are not flooded with Nicaraguan migrants like they are with people fleeing the Northern Triangle of Central America. So, I mean, to put it in a U.S. context, I think it would be hard for people to even believe that the Baltimore police or the New York police or the St. Louis police were just gunning people down day after day, but even more so the Nicaraguan police. Second, it is always fishy if a major incident occurs when the U.S. is trying to impose sanctions on a country. Mm -hmm. Ileana Rosletinen, this Cuban-American congresswoman who fortunately has retired, she had been trying for almost two years to pass sanctions on Nicaragua when she was getting nowhere with Congress. She needed a big incident to kill the country's reputation so Congress would listen to her and finally, she and Marco Rubio got their way at the end of 2018 with the passage of the NECA Act. Another important component is we must always think, who benefits from the conflict? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the same thing mm-hmm. of Maidan Square. Mm-hmm. Who benefits from the chaos that's being created? And in this case, with Nicaragua, it was clear that the government had everything to lose, and the opposition had everything to gain. The government had won a presidential election 18 months earlier with a large turnout and 72% of that vote. The economy was going like gangbusters. There was an average of 5% growth for the previous years. And Nicaragua's tourism sector was one of the hottest in Latin America, so social unrest and bad publicity was the last thing the government wanted. But the opposition in turn, they gained a lot of attention and they got international sympathy with the mainstream, mainstream narrative that was spread around the world. Next, context is everything. Social unrest around the world is largely over neoliberalism. Where neoliberal policies are in place, people are protesting them. Honduras, Haiti, Chile, Ecuador. Where progressive governments are in place resisting those neoliberal trends, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Evo Morales is Bolivia, those governments are being pressured by the U.S., and another sign of this is that the protests in Nicaragua were led by U.S. funded NGOs of course. and political parties, of course. and they they originally just had one demand—pension reform—but it turned on a dime to be a demand that the president must resign immediately. Mm-hmm. But in Ecuador, Chile, and Honduras, the protests were led by social movements. Teachers, trade unions, indigenous people, and other groups. And they had several demands that they had had for years against their neoliberal governments. And they did not insist on the immediate resignation of an elected president. And they also didn't go around destroying government buildings and attacking government supporters. But another thing is... In our peace movement here, we must remember that you have to get your news from social movement and anti-imperialist media. And you can count on the Washington Post and the New York Times to tell you the complete opposite of the truth when it comes to geopolitics. While things were going on in Nicaragua, I love that quote of Malcolm X where he says, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people being oppressed and loving the people who are yeah. doing the oppressing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's like the Washington Post took that on as an assignment. <laughs> They're doing a really good job at yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Another important lesson from Nicaragua, and this is an unfortunate one, and it has been touched on here today, and I'm really glad that people are facing up to that. And that is that old friends living in the country may not be a reliable source of information in this kind of situation if they do not have a good anti-imperialist analysis and are disconnected from grassroots social movements. American expats in Nicaragua and their friends in the U.S. have unfortunately steered us wrong about what's happening in Nicaragua. The U.S. and its allies have been conducting a disinformation campaign against the Sandinistas for decades, greatly assisted in the past 25 years by disaffected Sandinistas in the MRS political party, the Sandinista Renovation Movement. Now, something we haven't touched on that is also a thread through these countries is a PR firm called Purpose. Purpose is the ones who brought you the Syria campaign and the White Helmets Mm -hmm. in Syria. They are now operating in Latin America. I do not know for certain that they were operating in Nicaragua in 2018, but their tactic of faking left and going right is perfected by the MRS party. This small group broke off from the Sandinistas in 1995 and is largely composed of people who were from wealthier families, well-educated people, many of whom speak English, and were points of contact for international solidarity folks in the 1980s. So they do get a lot of attention abroad, although their peak of their support was about 6% of the vote in Nicaragua. In the last 10 years, they haven't been getting more than about 1%. Uh, The MRS likes to speak about social issues that are popular with liberals abroad and with the Soros Institute, gay rights, abortion rights, even women's rights. But they have little to say about economic issues. And I can tell you from – I'm always curious about how women's rights get turned into this corporate pro-war line. And so I asked women in Nicaragua, peasant women – you know, what, what, do you, what do you think about the mainstream feminists in Managua? And they're like, yeah, it seemed like they wanted us to help vote them into power, but they didn't care about us as peasants, and they didn't care about our seeds, which is something, if we have time to talk about, I'd love to tell you about Nicaragua's food sovereignty um, program and agroecology. That'll have to be outside the panel, but it's very exciting stuff that's going on in Nicaragua. But the MRS is not plugged into these social movements. They don't seem to have anything to offer them. Mm -hmm. And they did not defend the population in the struggle against the neoliberal governments from 1990 to 2006. And in fact, they've aligned with the right-wing political parties before, during, and after the violence of 2018. They exhibit a visceral hatred of anything having to do with Daniel Ortega and his government— And they seem to use this as justification for becoming allies of the right wing. Another very important thing for peace activists in the US to remember is that regime change operations do not spring up overnight. Even though we might learn about them overnight, they are the products of years of carefully laid plans. And while Kevin and others, were bravely protecting the Venezuelan embassy in Washington last spring. They had some wonderful signs posted up on the building to educate passers-by about how coups work. And I love this one about how to carry out a coup. And step number one is call the country's president a dictator. The MRS began calling Daniel Ortega a dictator before he was even elected president in 2006. And also, regime change operations are often more subtle than a violent coup, and they can involve years of discrediting a government's reputation. This just happened in another Central American country that had 10 years of progressive government that had made great strides in poverty reduction and social programs. I'm talking about El Salvador. The slanders, especially accusations of corruption against the FMLN, were so relentless by 2019 that this, combined with a social media campaign, got the neoliberal Najib Bukele elected last year. And he's now busy privatizing everything in El Salvador. And even almost tried to pull off a self-coup a couple of weeks ago. And don't forget the accusations of corruption against Lula and the Workers' Party in Brazil that led to his imprisonment and the election of right-wing extremist Jair Bolsonaro. So we need to think about where these accusations are coming from and what purpose they serve. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, the MRS campaign to discredit Daniel Ortega has worked outside the country and split the American left, as we've mentioned here that's why I'm so pleased to see UNAC addressing this kind of issue and coming out strongly to support the progressive governments that are protecting their people from yes. neoliberalism. Yes. And just to say a little bit more about that, yes, and we do have the uh, repeal sanctions against Nicaragua. We have that active now and. Um, you can see me afterwards about signing on. But um, just to say a little bit about the, the sanctions, um, we know Nicaragua is being called the Troika of Tyranny. <laughs> and after the Bolivian coup of last year, I realized why Bolivia wasn't... I kept thinking they are going to have to make it a, a foursome of tyranny. But I realized why the troi, why it's these three in the Troika. And it's because they're the ones that the U.S. hasn't been able to manipulate their police and their army. And so it's harder to change the regime. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. isn't going to give up. That means that what Venezuela and Cuba have been subjected to, we can see that coming down the pike for Nicaragua. And the the economic blackmail will continue against Nicaragua until its economy screams, like Venezuela's is doing, Mm -hmm. and until its population suffers like the Cuban people are suffering right now. Right now, Nicaragua's economy is doing pretty well, but they don't have the number of visitors or foreign investors um, yet. So thanks very much for listening, and I hope we can discuss.
1: When we try to analyze these uh, uprisings, are they real or are they U.S. regime change, the first question is who benefits. And it's interesting to try to analyze it. Some of the places to look for that is a map. I mean, a map is like Ukraine. Uh, the map is so important. Uh, it borders Russia. It's the map in Iran. I mean, Syria, the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, it's a, when you, if you look where the Belt and Road Initiative goes, those are good targets for regime change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a map is very critical. Uh, as a first place. Another place to start is a CIA fact book. The CIA fact book is a very uh, helpful source on what, what does that country produce? What are its riches? You know, what can the U.S. steal from them? Uh, And so that's a a key place to start. Uh, And also looking at U.S. history, I think a really good example of this is Syria. You know, the first, uh, before uh, Mossadegh, the first CIA attempted coup was in Syria. And uh, they they succeeded in removing it, but it didn't last very long and became a military-controlled outside the U.S., but that was kind of the first attempt. Uh, And then they learned better and succeeded, unfortunately, in Iran. But looking at that history, could have told us a lot about the Syrian coup and not been fooled by all the anti-Assad stuff and instead focused on U.S. actions. And I think that's really key for all of us. If we're focused on U.S. actions, U.S. imperialism, we're less likely to be fooled. Another open source of information is the National Endowment for Democracy. Unlike the CIA, their budget is published. Uh, You can see how much they're investing. And they invest for a long time. For example, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, uh, which confused a lot of people... The U.S. Has, through NED has been investing in Hong Kong and anti-China movement in Hong Kong since before the 1997 transfer from the U.K. colony to back, back to China. And they've been investing more and more more aggressively. there's a, The reason why there's an anti, anti-China campaign in Hong Kong is because the U.S. has built it. They did the same thing in Ukraine. They invested for a long time in building a pro-European movement there. And so understanding NED's funding, I think, is a gigantic clue and place to start. And it's not just U- NED, it's USAID, it's the State Department. Unfortunately, we can't see the CIA budget. That would probably be the best clue. But sometimes they, they, there are leaks about what the CIA is doing. And as far as, far as leaks go, a great place to start to understand things is WikiLeaks. There's so much information in WikiLeaks that we don't take advantage of. When anything's happening around the world, go to WikiLeaks, look up what's been released there about those governments and about the social movements in those countries, and I think you'll you'll get a lot of understanding. And then finally, I think the message of the protests: when the protesters have a sign that says "Trump Save Us," yes, it's a very good sign that this is a U.S. coup. And that was a sign in Hong Kong. In, in Hong Kong, the real problems are economic. Uh, Hong Kong is uh, the most extreme neoliberal capitalist country in the world. It's got an incredibly bad economy, except for the wealthiest. Uh, and yet those protests were not about that economy. The, the ones that got attention, at least, uh, were about anti-China. Even though China does not control the government, China uh, is in, not allowed to change the economy until it takes full control for 50 years after the 97 transfer began, and so the coup made no sense uh, from that perspective. Uh, and the, the final thing I mentioned about Hong Kong was, and it was just a good example, is uh, the quality of the protests. Some of those protests, and this is true in Ukraine too. We start, In fact, popular resistance began the year the Ukraine coup was happening, and we st- and we were looking at. Uh, we, we came out of the Occupy movement, but so we had some experience. But still, we were just starting to report on movements around the world, and those Ukraine protests were amazing. Wow, they were incredible, uh, and the Hong Kong protest beautiful. I mean, uh, musicals and signage and costumes and uh, oh my gosh, it's symbolism. They had it all. Uh, you know, this was coming out of a group with uh, experience i.e. the United States, and those kinds of things. So there are lots of ways for us to see the truth. We have to be very careful not to be uh, blinded by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian. The Guardians become absolutely terrible. And so it's, it's very important for us to be skeptical of those sources and look to social media, but social media is tricky because one thing that NED and U.S. coup mongers do is better and better is social media as well. So if you see a lot of bots... It's another good sign that this is probably a U.S.
0: You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was Identifying U.S. Regime Change Campaigns, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via radio That's radio, the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening.